You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today, we have Tina Wells. Uh, Tina Wells is the CEO and founder of Buzz Marketing Group, which creates marketing strategies for clients within the beauty, entertainment, fashion, financial, and lifestyle sectors. Named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, Tina is the author of Chasing Youth Culture and Getting It Right. She also serves on the United Nations Global Entrepreneurship Council and as the current academic director of Wharton's Leadership in the Business World program. Here today to share, us, to share with us her insights on trend spotting and building innovative marketing strategies for a diverse world of consumers, please, wel- please welcome Tina Wells. Is there a specific place I'm supposed to stand? Jen, this ah, X right here, X. I think, is the default. But I think you're, you're free to roam. I am free to roam? Yeah. Okay. But the, the X is home. Okay. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for welcoming me. Uh, I feel a bit jet-lagged, so uh, I said no PowerPoint today. Uh, I wanted to have a conversation. And you know, we've spent some time talking about, about this class and about what you're learning and, and about the center. And so I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about how I started my company. It's been 18 years now, so it feels like a very long time, and I think it's also because it's been a really long time. So I want to talk about how I started. I started my company back in 1996, and so it feels uh, very ancient. The world was really different. The tools I had available to me to do that and to start are very different than what I think young entrepreneurs have today. And so I want to talk a bit about how I started and, and focus on the work we do at the agency and then what we do now. And I hope to uh, save kind of some significant time to have Q&A and to engage with you and answer your questions. So uh, let me start off with how I started Buzz. So I never, ever thought I'd be an entrepreneur. Uh, in 1996, that was not a word that was really kind of known to me. I always thought I'd be a beauty editor. And so I was very focused on fashion and beauty and I wanted to be a, you know, an editor at primarily a, a teen girl magazine, kind of like 17. And so at 16, I applied for a job with a newspaper for girls out of New York City called the New Girl Times. And at the Times, I primarily wrote uh, product reviews focused on, you know, my first column ever was for a company called High Intensity that made very cool jewelry. And I found during that process of reviews that when I would submit the, the column back to whoever gave me product, they would always say, if I keep sending you product, will you tell me what you think? And at 16, I thought that was the coolest thing ever, that there were tons of companies who would send me products if I just told them what I thought. And so uh, I thought that was the gig. I didn't think it was a way to make money. It was something I became really passionate about. And you know, even at 34, I still am so passionate about trends, about new things, about you know, whether it's reading about a new destination in, in Condé Nast Traveler. It's something that still fuels me today, the idea that you know, there's so many new products to try, so little time. And so uh, and back in 96, I remember a lot of PR-type uh, people were my quote-unquote clients. And I, w- I started getting phone calls, like, I have a friend. She works on this brand you'd be really cool to talk to. And I didn't really understand you know, what the conversation would be. I was literally a, a suburban teenage girl. Um, I should, I, I guess, go back and say I'm the oldest of six children. And so 
uh, you know, the eight of us, what I was kind of the odd kid doing this interesting thing. And, and since all of my siblings uh, have really interesting careers and do really interesting things. But at the time, it was something very different and very new. And so my parents were like, why is UPS, you know, why are UPS and FedEx here every day? So no one really got what was going on. I didn't really get what was going on. But it was happening really quickly. And so by the time I was 17, I had about 40 clients. And again, I use that word very loosely because I hadn't yet had that moment where I realized I could make money doing what I was doing. And so I started to recruit my friends and say, if I give you guys some of these products, can we all review them and I'll tally our scores and I'll send this little report back to our client. And so that worked for a while. And then my friends would say, well, I have a cousin in Texas and she would love to be you know, one of your trend spotters. And again, think about the time we're talking about. I said, well, how would I communicate with her? You know, I had just gotten an AOL email address at 16. So you know, the idea of, of technology and connectivity wasn't something that was yet really um, relevant, I think, at that time. And, and the way to communicate, the way our network communicates today didn't really make sense at that time. And so it continued um, pretty small until I got to college. And as a freshman in college, um, I had two really important things that happened at the same time. First, I uh, took my intro to business course at Hood College. I went to a women's school, Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. And I took an intro to business with the head of the department. And at the same time, I was working on one of these reports for a fashion company. And my client at the time called and she said, I'm gonna tell you something really important. I just received your report, I reviewed it with my team, and yours is 10 times better than a report we paid $25,000 for. You have a business, it's called market research, and that's all I'm gonna tell you, go figure it out. And so uh, during office hours, I went into Dr. Joseph's office, I said, here's what I've been doing for the last two and a half years, what do you think? And she took some time and kind of just stared at me for a while, and then she said, I want you to take an independent study with me next semester and let's see if we can't make this a real business. And so uh, I was really fortunate at that time to, uh, I, like, I always tell Dr. Jose, I got beat up for 13 weeks in a row uh, into creating a business and marketing plan, but you know, I still use those plans today. And I was really fortunate because when I was in college at that time, so I think 97 to probably spring of 98, it was um, right around that like dot-com boom. And so when Dr. Joseph and I talked, she said, I don't want you to get caught up in what at that point seemed to be kind of a trend. So I want you to build a business that's a solid business. And if there's a digital component, that's great, but you've got to build a solid business. And there, I mean, to help you understand what was happening at this time in the internet, there were websites like kpasa.com that were raising $50 million and then went bust you know, a couple months later. So it was very different than I think kind of the builder movement that's happening now. And a little bit, I'll get into some of the trends we're, we're studying. Um, and so I understood, okay, I need to build the solid business. And I was really fortunate that when I needed to understand statistics, I could go and talk to a professor. And if I needed to understand how psychology and sociology played into my business, there were people that were available for me to talk to. So, of course, I'm a big advocate about, of building businesses while you're in school. Um, I think that I always say I, my education definitely worked for me. Um, and it was really important for me to actively be a student and also build this business. And so, you know, I, can, I worked with Dr. Jost and realized, okay, I have services now, I can make money, and started working really hard at recruiting you know, clients. And by the end of 
my college career, I was working with Verizon Wireless. I remember spring of my senior year doing a research project for them and you know, flying to California and back to school for class. And I spent my junior year, instead of studying abroad, I studied away, lived and worked in Chicago, which I really found to be kind of the mecca for marketing. And so you know, at 22, I'd had a lot of experience, at this point, six years of running this business. And I still thought maybe this was just a really interesting hobby. You know, I didn't actually think this was going to be my career for as long as it's been my career. And so I still remember the conversation with my advisor when I said, oh, you know, I just, I just watched Legally Blonde. I was just talking about this last week in another conference and thought, I should go to law school. I don't know, people who like fashion and beauty go to law school. I don't know. And I remember him just saying, yes, you could go to law school because you're a very good student. Um, and not knowing that this is what I wanted to do. And I had been getting some media, and I thought that the media was focused on my story of being this interesting girl doing this interesting thing. And even at that age, you know, 21, I didn't think that was the way to build a business, you know, so focused on one person, one story. And I also didn't think it was the right story. I didn't think it was the right message because at some point you have to grow up and you have to be respected as a research company or whatever it is that we, that we were becoming, not there's this cool girl that does this cool stuff with product. You know, I, I felt like there was a timeline on that. And so I said to my advisor, you know, we, we really talked, spent quite a bit of time, different sessions talking about, should I go to law school? Should I do, you know, vastly different things? Should I go into the field, you know, and just apply for a job? And, you know, I remember my, my girlfriend's senior year reading, like, this book on quarter-life crisis, and it was really funny. They were like, oh, you, of course, don't need to read this book. I'm like, I probably have the biggest crisis here of everybody. Um, but I decided, I said to my advisor at the time, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I think that, now, when I graduated, it was spring 2002, and illegal downloading had become a major issue, or it was becoming kind of a thing. You know, it was a Sean Fanning movement, and there was a thing. And um, during the spring of my senior year, I spoke at a music industry conference. It was a very interesting conference, because there were three other presenters from really, really big research institutions, and they were saying things to the audience, who you can imagine, were people who were quite concerned about illegal downloading. And they were saying things like, it's not going to be an issue. Only 17% of people illegally download music. And then I get up, you know, this senior in college who has a research panel. And at that time, um, I should back up and say, our network grew to 9,000 people solely because Cosmo Girl magazine wrote two sentences about what I was doing. And I got 15,000 applications from people all over the world who wanted to be buzz spotters. And so, you know, we really created this great network. And we had done research and found of the 500 people we surveyed that 99% of them had illegally downloaded music within the last 30 days. And so, obviously, we were presenting two very, very different uh, sets of data. And so, uh, I kind of was disheartened. I was cut out of an article in Billboard. And I thought, OK, well, that is what it is. And, and so back to that conversation. Dr. Weinberg, I said, you know what I want to do? I want to, I've always wanted to be a liaison between consumers and people who target them. And at the time, it was teens. And then as I you know, grew older, as young adults, and now I'm 34. So we say consumers, uh, and people who market to them. I said, I want to talk about things that other people don't want to talk about. And I don't have any skin in the game to necessarily need to go one direction or prove one thing. I'm really curious to why consumers do what they do and what their interests are. And so presenting that research was to say, 
you might be right. Maybe only 17% of people illegally download music. I just have a belief that the 99% that are in this demographic I'm dealing with have a really huge impact. And obviously, we, we know now that that did have an incredible impact on that business. I think still today, it is impacting the music business and, and how that business is shaped now. And so, you know, that's always my example of, of the power of millennials and the power of consumers when they decide that something is or is not working for them. And so, you know, I decided I was going to try that out for a year. I opened an office in New York City, uh, and I worked there. I lived in South Jersey, and I still live in South Jersey today. And so did that for three or four years. And I guess the most interesting thing that happened during that time was I was featured in a cover story uh, for O Magazine. And so at 25, you know, having that kind of Oprah stamp of approval of my career was huge. I didn't think it would be. Not that I didn't think the Oprah brand was huge. I just didn't think anybody cared about a kid who was doing research in New Jersey. You know, I just didn't think that was a story that would resonate with people. And uh, obviously, um, if you're lucky enough to be touched by the Oprah brand, it does turn to gold if you're doing something good. And so it was great for us. And I, I still remember clients coming into the office like with my actual page from the magazine, kind of like, we saw this. And so uh, that was great for our agency. And I think we kind of, you know, again, other profiles in, in 30 under 30 and all kinds of awards, which for me, and I think you understand if you're an entrepreneur, you have to be fascinated by your work and passionate about it. And the other stuff is just stuff that happens. It's not something you pause. And I think, you know, my mom, I realized uh, recently, has a clipbook of all of, of my different media. But for me, it was just, it's another day. And it's another day that I get to do something that I love. And so um, we continue to grow the network, continue with our research. And then, you know, the economy took a turn, which was interesting because what happened is our business uh, really diversified. So we got into influencer marketing, again, by accident, I had a client call and say, you know, the girls I talked to about beauty, we're having some issues launching a product at Sephora. Do you think we could engage them in influencer? And this was probably about 2007. So I don't think, you know, it was right around the time like Buzz Agent was coming along and I thought, I don't know that we're that. Um, you know, I've always really wanted that lane of consumers being able to openly and honestly express yeah. their opinions to brands. And that was a really, and still is a very core value of our company and very important to me. So that means if I have to say something that's not great, that that has to be okay. And that also is a big reason why I don't have a team of 50, 60, 70 people, because sometimes I do have to make decisions that I think are a little more ethically driven for our business. And so um, at that time, I wasn't sure it would work. And we tried Influencer, and it, did, it worked really, really well. And so we incorporated that into our services. And so you know, when the economy took a turn, it was a lot of traditional things that were getting cut and people reinvesting into the type of work we, we do. And so, you know, we have over the last 18 years worked with 135 companies. Um, and I guess some highlights for me would be at companies like American Eagle Outfitters, Sony Music, Dell, Microsoft. And so we've gotten to touch some really big brands and I've learned so much from our clients. And I would say personally for me, um, one of the more fun accomplishments, a lot of people talk about my business book, but not so much about my children's series. So I write a series for seven to 12 year old girls. Uh, it's published by HarperCollins Children's Books. It's called Mackenzie Blue. And it's really focused on a girl that I think is kind of like a modern Ramona. And I've written five books in the series. We've sold for 200,000 copies. So 
It's a really fun, you know, I, I feel like it's my fun passion project. Um, I'm working on another series right now. Uh, it's all about a girl who can't tell a lie and what happens in middle school. And so, uh, you know, writing and creating Mackenzie and creating a character that is really beloved by girls has been an interesting experience for me, especially as a researcher, because through Mackenzie, through you know, her life, I get to see girls react to her and really get to understand kind of what's going on in the life of a 12-year-old girl. And, and that was something really interesting. And I guess as a final comment before I open it up to your questions, um, uh, two years ago, I was elected to the United Nations Foundation's Global Entrepreneurs Council. And so we are charged with um, bringing innovative ideas to the UN. And if I weren't working for myself, I would absolutely love to work for the UN. And so it's been a really incredible experience. It's why I'm actually in San Francisco now. Uh, I have a board meeting. It's our last. And so um, it's just been an unbelievable experience for me for the last two years. And, and earlier this year, I got to spend some time in Uganda. I got to visit a refugee settlement and meet entrepreneurs. And when I think about what entrepreneurship means to me now at 34, a bit more established in kind of what your opportunity is. You know, when I started out, there were not a lot of tools um, and there weren't a lot of people that could help other people rationalize what I was doing. You know, you guys live in a world where everybody knows who Mark Zuckerberg is. Everybody knows what it means to be an entrepreneur and everybody understands the upside. You know, when I was doing it, I was that girl doing that weird thing and people were saying to my parents, your daughter's so smart. Why, why isn't she a lawyer or a doctor, you know? They just didn't get it. And so, you know, I, I'm now members of, you know, many different associations that didn't exist when I started. And so I think that the entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, and especially what I got to see in Uganda, uh, has really made me an even bigger champion of entrepreneurship. You know, seeing innovation that can drive and create business opportunities in Uganda and meeting, you know, female entrepreneurs who are, you know, creating an amazing life for their children that are able to send their children to private schools just because they're entrepreneurs and they have simple businesses, selling soap, you know, having farms is, is something that was really interesting to see. And so I guess at this point, I would love to open up for questions and we can talk about my work. We can talk about trends that I'm seeing, whatever is interesting to you. Um, I know for a second you touched on like uh, almost like an ethical quandary in your business from time to time. I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that. Sure. Um, sure. I, he's talking about really the ethics involved in what I do every day. And I think that marketing, um, marketing is an interesting area when you talk about that, right? It's the images that we create, the messages that we send. I think that there was a time um, where I talk to my clients about kind of a one-way funnel where we push things out to consumers and, and imagine, you know, when I was a teenager, I'll use myself as an example, I feel like Gap dictated my whole life, right? It's like when their fall campaign came out, that's who I was, that's what I was going to be. Um, and if I wanted a really a specific shoe, there was no online shopping. I went to a mall that dictated what I had access to and that's, that was that. You know, if I was a suburban Jersey girl, this is what I could have access to. And I, I'm sure we remember those times where our friends would travel to the West Coast and we'd get something there that we couldn't get at home. And so I think it created this funnel where marketers could project onto consumers what was cool. And there have been documentaries. Uh, I think there was a particular one I saw 
called the Merchants of Cool, where Sprite actually said, we project onto you the image of who we want you to be. Um, and that, for me, is definitely a bit of an ethical dilemma. And I think I was coming about in a time where you know, technology has created um, this interesting democracy where consumers can, I, I feel, have the power and can dictate things to brands. You know, Gap changed its logo, consumers didn't like it, they changed it back to the old one. You know, that would never happen, in my opinion, 20 years ago. Uh, I think your ability to shop online and to make those types of decisions totally changes the playing field. You know, it's not a dictatorship anymore. It's, if I don't like this, I won't do it. You know, if I don't want to buy a car, I can use Uber now. You know, if I want to be a conscious consumer, there are ways I can do that. And so I think that for me, I've always erred on the side of just working with brands that I really like and brands whose products I am passionate about. You know, and it's hard because there's some, you know, for me, can I say, I was so passionate about Dell. Um, You know, I may not have, the products I got to work on were amazing products and for people who, who need PCs. But what I was really passionate about was Michael Dell's entrepreneurial spirit and that he is really a true entrepreneur who is fascinated by new things and creating new things. And so that for me was someone I could get behind. And I think that in general, I would tell you 90% of the people I've worked with have really wanted to connect with this consumer. And the people who wanted to dictate to them weren't people that would work with my system anyway, because you know the consumer and that research and data, you know, we have a process we call connect, brand, impact, understand. And the first step in that process is bringing in the voice of the consumer. So you can imagine if you're a marketer that you already have your plans and you just want me to verify what you're saying, we probably wouldn't be the best match. So uh, I, I think that earlier in my career, it was something that probably came up a lot more, where now I feel like it's the reverse for brands are understanding that you dictate what's going to happen and they're just trying to figure out where they fit. What methods do you use or like where do you look to spot trends and what trends are going on today? Um, where do I look? To, where do I spot trends? I, <laughs> I was at Starbucks today and I was sitting next to a very interesting millennial having a conversation about her job at Salesforce and her co-workers and I wish I could have taped that conversation. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by how quick it was happening and what she was talking about and so uh, I travel quite a bit. I travel outside the U.S. quite a bit but you know, I don't believe that great trends are started in New York, in LA. You know, I, I think that especially today, you know, trends come from all over the place. And I, I am really fascinated by people, you know, and I think that to think that you can go to one place and one source and get everything you need is very antiquated. You know, there was a time when people would produce a trend report and send it out and say to everybody, these are the colors of the season. You know, and I think, again, going back to the technology piece, consumers are, it's so fascinating to me. You know, think about when, when fashion blogging became a thing, right? So think about a magazine like Lucky, that when you open Lucky today, I feel like fashion bloggers drive that book, you know, where years ago it was editors dictating to us what was cool and what was edgy. And now we look at really cool people and those are who, you know, I think Olivia Palermo probably tells more people what's cool than, you know, a fashion editor. And so it's interesting to see that power play where now it's like we all have to work together. And so for me, um, commuting is a great time. You know, if I'm in an airport, I, I can always tell when a trend is mass 
based on my time in the airport. I'll give you an example. Two, Uggs and Toms. When you get on a plane and everybody walking past you, no matter what age, is engaged with a certain type of brand, that's when you can start to see mass influence. And there are times where I remember seeing two people at an airport with Toms, and then I remember every other person having a pair of Toms. And so I'm always looking at that moment, that breaker moment when something is really becoming mass. You know, we had a trend a couple of years ago we called mass exclusivity, which is the idea that everybody um, wants mass products that are customized from, for them, kind of driven by iPod. So, you know, I, I'm, I don't think that trends come from just one place or just one person because at the end of the day, you know, my clients want volume. And so, you know, we're right now creating something called the Millennial Brand Index where we're ranking brands in many different categories. Um, and I'm talking to someone who is going to be part of a judging panel for this project. And she said to me, you know, you're talking about all these companies that are really interesting. But of course, the ones I like, like Warby Parker. I love Warby Parker. She said, what I want to know is if the girl in Kansas loves Warby Parker. And I think that is a great question because we sometimes can become a little obsessed with what's happening on the coast. And we don't realize it's a huge company, a company, huge country uh, with so many different opinions. And so I tried to not let one idea dictate when I think something's cool. Um, and I also don't think that I had the answers. I think you find a lot of people, I don't know if you guys experience this, I see a lot in business where it's like, because I have a child who's 12, I understand all 12 year olds, you know? Or I know millennials, my child is a millennial. And what I always take the, the approach is that I don't know anything. And that I think um, every day something is changing and every day I'm getting new, new access to new research and information. And so I always try to approach it from I'm just here to learn and to observe and to interpret. And I don't really have an end goal from it. I just want to know what's interesting. And so, you know, I think you have to, to kind of do the work I do, just be very open to learning something new and not, I think the most important thing is to not go into it, any assignment for me with any preconceived notion. And, and sometimes I think that's hard with my clients because they sometimes arrive at the end and then want me to justify it. And so that sometimes creates a dilemma, I think. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, I like that airport story. I'm just wondering, perhaps on a more personal thing, in the past few floods you've gone on, what stuff have you noticed? What's caught your eye? Um, what have I noticed? I think, oh, and I have to answer your question, sorry, about trends. I'll tell you a bit about the trends we're predicting for next year. Um, I think what I'm noticing lately is what's missing. Um, I'll give you an example. I don't think we figured out a charging solution that makes sense for as many devices as we all have. I see a lot of people crowding around very few outlets. Um, so needs of technology. Um, I see, in general, airports becoming a more interesting hub of shopping. You know, we, and spe specifically, I can speak to Philadelphia. Yeah, I, it's not a joke that like the best shopping is in the airport. Um, and so the airport as a destination, but just from people in general, it's that they want to be connected and that we've got to figure out how to make that connectivity easier. You know, when you go to many other places outside of the US, it's really easy to get online and to have great Wi-Fi and to be online. And so figuring out, you know, that issue, and, I, and it is, I, it's funny, I, I'm seeing more problems lately. Um, I see a problem of food quality in airports. 
and what consumers are looking for and what they have access to. Uh, so I think I see kind of more opportunity. And then in, in general with consumers, um, it's very interesting. You know, uh, there was a time where, where uh, teenagers were called screenagers because they were looking at so many screens. And what fascinates me is looking at boomers. You know, I think everyone's so millennial focused that they don't realize that there are other generations that where really interesting things are happening. And so I think watching um, kind of the non-millennial engage in technology, with technology, with so many different forms of technology, and figuring that out is something that's interesting, is to really see you know, how integral it is and that I think we're still a little bit behind. It might probably not be the case here, but there are places where you know, what consumers need in that space and how connected they want to be and that, that connectivity is not available at that moment. Um, and in general, to your question about other trends, so we've got, um, we're working on our top 10 trends of 2015 right now. And we're focused on some things like the makers movement. Um, and in talking to some of our buzz spotters, what's interesting is there are those that consider themselves real makers who really make stuff. And they're really put off by the idea that everybody thinks they're a maker. But I just think it's something that's becoming a bigger consumer play. And we're seeing it in different areas. I was on my flight over reading an article in Marie Claire when they were talking about how to make the perfect palette. And you can buy this palette called a Z palette that's a plain palette. And you can literally, if you want to put your makeup in the oven and you can unglue it and, and create your own palette. And so I thought about, you know, how interesting it is that we deconstruct makeup that we pay a lot of money for to create our own custom solution. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about um, customization before and the need for customization, but to actually give consumers the ability to make things and participate in this different way um, is something new. Uh, we're, we're talking about this idea of being selfie conscious, um, and it's not at all that millennials are self-conscious, it's that I feel like, and through our research we've seen, that there's such an emphasis these days on perfection, you know, that there was a time where it's like you could just walk out looking however you looked. I mean, I, I went to college at a time where girls were going in like pajamas and Uggs or whatever boots they were wearing at the time or sneakers, you know? And so to think of a time now where everyone has to, like, think of your Instagram feed and how good everybody looks all day long. It's that pressure of you have to look good all day long because there's a filter for that. And why didn't you get into this top college? And why aren't you going to this top? And so it's the pressure to be in all the right places, doing all the right things and looking good and not looking stressed that I think we're looking at. And that data is really important to our clients because as they start to create brand messages, it's important to understand just what's going on in life for the average millennial. Um, and I think we were exploring another trend called InstaFeed, but I think the team is like moving that into selfie conscious where I was looking at the continuous feed that we live in where every moment in our life is something we're documenting and not just living and how does that affect things in general. Uh, we're talking about fitspiration. Um, Fitness and wellness, and, and it's interesting. Um, again, I hadn't read Marie Claire in months, and so I'm catching up and listening to the, reading this editor's letter. And she's talking about how they're totally changing the health section of the magazine, and it's no longer about like how to do the perfect crunch. It's now about like a much more lifestyle approach to fitness. And again, it, Instagram's become a big inspiration for this kind of thing, but thinking about the images of people who are so healthy. I mean, how many people pop up in your feed that are like, I'm working out, and you know, people like Jen Seltzer or whatever her name is, it's the, who are in Vanity Fair for you know, how amazing their butt looks. And so 
again, it's the, the, the power of image and how that's coming across in that medium to say, okay, now I have to be fit. And, now, and think about like soul cycle, whether you go or not, you know what this thing is, right? It's like a coal, right? I love when workouts are called coals, but it means that they're building some kind of brand culture that people associate with in some way. And so we're looking at that. Um, we're also exploring net neutrality. Uh, it's something that's come up over, you know, th- that's one of those moments where I said, um, I never try to, to say what I think a millennial will or won't do. I remember when we did our original research on net neutrality, and I said, I don't even know if this is an, is- an issue they even know about. You know, and I was so wrong. Um, <laughs> just in, and not only the knowledge, but also um, why it was important. And I think that there, there's an interesting trend happening now where traditionally, Parents told children what to do, right? And they were the authority. And we've explored this in different trends like hand-me-ups where millennials were actually handing up older phones to parents because of shared cell phone plans and and the millennials were getting the better technology. And there's also this divide where they're also explaining technology and, and that's something that's become a really interesting thing to explore, right? When you think of very traditional companies, think of like, food companies, grocery stores, how they talk to consumers about what's important and their issue, their image of family and what they project, you know, a trend of who, it becomes a lot of like, who is the making the main decisions in the household? And so, you know, exploring that kind of trend. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's really interesting. I mean, that's a preview so far. I think um, I like selfie conscious. I like looking at what that means and looking at how also to your question of ethics, are we as marketers putting that pressure there to look perfect and saying that perfection has never been more affordable. You can dye your hair in 10 minutes. Why would your roots be showing? It's so easy to fix, you know? As we create really easy fixes to things, I think we also don't allow room for imperfection. And so that is creating, you know, and it's it, it becomes a predictor of will you as a generation push back on that? You know, I think we also look at your um, position on government. You know, and and this has been a really interesting thing. We we pull this a lot, um, and we found that in general, millennials might be a little more centrist than people think. You know, when we did research five or six years ago, the percentage of millennials that said that they were Democrat was, you know much larger than what we're seeing today. But then also, we're looking at the implications of, even if they're, number one, one thing, one trend that's interesting, they don't identify, um, we, we did two types of identification. Are you Democrat, are you Republican, are you independent? Or do you think that you are more centrist, like we use different words and got different responses? And then becomes the idea, totally separate idea, of that they don't think government is actually working for them. And in that case, they feel like other millennials or other people are better solving problems outside of government. And MTV's done a lot of research and a lot of work around this. And that really creates an interesting conversation around problem solving. And if millennials start to approach problem solving outside of a government structure, what does that look like? And so I think um, this is a year of, for us, asking really interesting questions and just looking at metrics and data. I think it's one of those kind of transitional years to say, okay, 
Like we, we know the traditional things are happening, right? Like digital is more important than ever before, that you're digital natives and that, you know, for brands, they have to speak in this way, but it has to be authentic. Like I think so many of those things now are known. Um, I think what's happened is that it's become a year of, like, I don't know if you all ever feel this way, but I feel like people talk about millennials like a species they've never seen before. Instead of just understanding, like, you have to engage like you would with any other demographic. And there are a lot of people out there that talk about what, 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 what all day long, and no one talks about how. And so I think for us as an agency, um, next year is really about t- having a conversation about how. You know, how do you engage? How do you know it's important? Um, and how do you take into consideration all the trends we've talked about from, you know, mass exclusivity to a couple of years ago, we talked about Warholism, which is the idea that all millennials believe they can be famous. It's not as interesting as it used to be. You know, I remember growing up in a time where only seven real people ever made it to TV and they were on MTV's real world. You know, now think about your younger siblings. You can record your own show on your iPhone, you know, cut it, put it on YouTube and you're instantly famous to your 100 followers overnight. And so can people sell you fame the way they used to be able to sell to my, you know, and I, I, I guess I'm technically still considered a millennial, but I'm the oldest of the millennials. So, you know, I might even be like the youngest Gen Xer. And so, you know, the power of celebrity to someone my age is very different, you know, and I, I even take it younger. Um, Fisher Price created a, a toy. It's a karaoke machine that you hook into your TV and a little girl, little boy, sings their favorite songs and sees their face on TV. How do you then explain to them there are people who are super famous, you mean on TV, like I was just on TV two seconds ago? You know, so that idea of what fame truly means, I think is something that's really changing. Also, you know, I was probably into my 20s before there was Perez Hilton, but you know, the minute you start drawing on celebrities' faces, it kind of, it's an interesting value proposition. You know, that's why we start to talk about this bigger concept of, are there really true celebrities left? Are there really true stars? Because, you know, I think that there, there are entertainers. There are people that we allow to entertain us. But are there people that we kind of uphold as this unbreakable celebrity image that there was when I was growing up? I don't necessarily know that that exists. So I think that there are a lot of questions to answer right now. Tina, especially in a business where it's all about understanding people, uh, and given your fascination with people and having uh, seen so many different types over your career, uh, what would you say has been the most interesting or meaningful or valuable thing you've learned about people, and how has this impacted the way that you interact with people on a daily basis or choose to approach your your business? That's a great question. Um, So I would say... Sure, I'll repeat the question. So uh, I, I was just saying that I've seen so many people and interacted with so many people. I guess who, what segment or what groups had the biggest impact on me and how I see things? Um, is that pretty much the essence? Yeah, well, yeah, and I guess just maybe people in general, what's been most valuable is that you realize about what, what motivates them. Okay. Um, so I think there are probably two experiences. First, I would say um, post-recession, talking with tweens. I'm completely fascinated by tweens because they have more technology than we've ever had. Um, it is something that's like digitally native for them. So I explain it like, you know, for people my age, we didn't have to discover TV, right? It's always there. It was always interesting. It wasn't a big new thing that happened in our lives. We get it. TV's awesome. Um, 
same way a seven, eight-year-old sees technology. It, and, and, and when I was writing my book, I had this theory that technology was ruining millennials. And what I actually realized is that it's the other generations that have the biggest issue, because millennials have always had it in a very appropriate place in, 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 in their lives, in your lives, where it is what it is. I can, you know, and when you want to spend time with friends, I find that the engagement can be much more, um, I hate to use the word real, but you know, you understand the place of technology. And so that was an interesting finding. And so when I think about tweens, their access to information and just how smart they are, um, I'm fascinated by them. And I, we were doing some research, and my favorite quote ever, we asked tween girls, how has the recession impacted you? And a girl said, I have not been impacted at all. My grandma just gave me $20. And I thought, like, I just love the optimism in that. Like, my life's great. I have $20. Life is awesome. And I love that, you know, for them, anything is possible. They're not quite yet at the age where they have any reason to kind of be defeated. It's like anything's possible. I'm going to keep moving, and I've got the tools to do it. And so when you see girls who can, you know, mix their own music or, or what technology is doing and allowing children to do and how imaginative they can be, that's fascinating to me. Um, and I'd say another group, when I was in Uganda and met entrepreneurs there, I realized that we truly do not understand what it means to run businesses with challenges. You know, I walk into a room, I know that if I flip the switch, the lights will work. I know where the nearest bathroom is. I know how to get out of the room in an emergency. I know that if I send an email, my internet is going to work. And to go to a place where none of those things are certain and to see people still work so hard and come up with unbelievable solutions. You know, I was on a remote island called Busi Island and met an entrepreneur who had developed a solar backpack that basically lit this clinic where women would have to go, if they could get there, to give birth. And when, if they happened to give birth at night, there was no light. So babies were born, and the first thing this baby is doing is inhaling smoke. You know? And so we don't think about those things, about the impact of those things. And to see an entrepreneur, you know, they came up with a solar backpack, now there's lighting, simple solutions. And so... I think so many of us spend so much time thinking about very complex things. And to see entrepreneurs focus on things that might seem so simple but were so life-changing for so many people. You know, we also met a group of Stanford students, uh, recent graduates who were living in Uganda and had come to open a company focused on uh, clean cook stoves. And it was amazing because no one understands the importance of a clean cook stove, that if you cook over an open fire, it is the equivalent of smoking five packs of cigarettes a day. And think about the fact that most of these women are doing this with a child on their back. And so the child's also inhaling smoke. They came up with a solution that's less than $10 that heats food in this kind of clay pot for five hours. And so to see how you know, the developed world was working with the developing world, I think was really interesting. And it, I've spent so much time, I think, trying to think of these really grand ideas and to see that something so simple, you know, meant so much to so many people, I think has been interesting. And, and the last one was, uh, actually, this was a, a day, a global accelerator, it was an entrepreneurship day at the UN. And entrepreneurs were pitching us ideas. And one guy had created a, um, a bicycle ambulance, which really made sense for parts of Africa where he was using it. And again, we think of such big technology, and this was really the safest, best solution at $1,500. And, and 
the statistics and research he had done on how many lives he had saved, it was unbelievable. And so I think that I walked away from that trip realizing that it's, it's the small innovations that sometimes can really have the biggest impact. And if you take away the comfort that we're used to, and we just had to, you know, other, so many entrepreneurs, people who created clean filtration systems that change the lives of children at boarding schools. So the idea that I think for me at this stage, it's thinking how simple can we be to come up with, with solutions? That's been most interesting. Students have yeah, questions. Sorry, I can't see you. I'll ask a couple if there's, if there's room, if we have time. So um, should I stand up or is it? OK, so, so I've got a couple questions I want to ask to make sure okay. that these guys get um, answers to. Okay. Um, you're in the business of separating, of finding signals amongst noise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest areas of noise or questions is, you know, what should I do with my life? Mm -hmm. And lots of people have passions. Few people are able to pursue their passions and actually convert those into real businesses that they can make a livelihood after and thrive in. How do you know, and you've done this multiple times, you know, in multiple different forays, when is there enough of a signal to indicate that a personal passion has, an, you should have enough conviction behind that personal passion to pursue that as a business when your parents are saying go to law school, go to medical school, or every, all of your friends are going and working for the hot company? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'm a big fan of not drinking your own Kool-Aid. Um, I think first I always start with what, what are you passionate about because the thing that people don't tell you about entrepreneurship is sometimes it really, really sucks. And so you have to really, really love it because the days that really suck really, really suck. And so if you're not passionate about it, that's the day where you're kind of like, I'm over it, this is done, and that's that. You know, so... Th that piece is so important, and I think people I've seen recently, it's like, well, I can make money doing this thing, but at the end of the day, I don't care how much money is in a deal, there's going to come a time where something is just going to be like not for you, and you've got to have that passion to say, I'm really, I really believe in this thing, or I just love it. You know, I, Every day, I love the job that I have, and I love what I get to do. Um, and then I always say knowledge is power. So the minute you have an idea... You know, we all have the ability to be researchers, and you really need to independently, not all of your friends and family, they love you, they'll tell you. Um, I was fortunate that my friends and family didn't really understand what I was doing, so they couldn't have told me they thought it was great anyway, because they didn't get it. But what I didn't realize at the time was, you know, early on, those 40 companies that thought that my insights were interesting kind of proved that I had a client base before I even knew what that meant. And so you really have to spend the time saying, what's my total market and what's my target market? And you always have to be able to answer that question. Not, I really think this is great because it doesn't matter. It, you know, we're not that great. You know? And there are people, you know, I think what's interesting today is I really do believe that there are entrepreneurs who are creating solutions that will change the world and are changing lives every day and making our lives, whether it's more beautiful or easier or more creative. But at some point, they had to qualify that. And so I would say, you know, and quantify it. You know, what are your total and target markets? And my favorite thing is when people say there's no competition. Uh, there is always competition. As a marketer, I will tell you, consumers can choose to do nothing. You always have competition. And so, you know, take a minute and be independent and, and say, you know, how do you qualify the idea? Who is your test market? We all can find 100 people to say, is this something you're interested in? And then is there a way... 
uh, to prove the concept? Can you start to sell something at least, you know, to one client? And how do you get through that sale process? And, and then always be kind of refining. Don't be so set on this is the way it has to go and always be in that research phase. Um, but I, I always hear, especially with technology, I think it's a little bit of a different story, right? Because there's the like analysis paralysis. When do you launch a product? When do you let people test it? Um, well, what's great about technology is consumers always, from the minute it's launched, get to tell you what they like and what they don't like. And so, you know, get yourself immersed in the ability to hear what your customers want from day one, I think would be the most important. Yeah, that is always the most important, just understand the empathy. How, and, okay, great, we go. Hi, uh, you talked earlier about, about uh, some problems that marketing has in terms, for example, of putting pressure on, uh, on people always to look good, always to, uh, yeah. Um, have you found yourself um, in a position that uh, you had a request from a customer that conflicted with your ethical views, and in case you had it, how did you cope with that? Um, so every client, I don't... Repeat the question just for... Sure. Sorry. So the question is, have I ever had a client that kind of conflicted with our ethical views of the company? And so what most people don't know is that we have a panel of our own buzzbotters that help us determine if a client is someone we should work with. And that's always a part of our process because, you know, I now have 30,000 buzzbotters all over the world, 7,000 mom spotters. So I've got 37,000 people that give their time and energy and when appropriate, contract with our clients and are paid to give their insights. And so that's a really important network. And, you know, I want them to know that we're always representing their thoughts and views. And so, you know, it's happened a few times where things just didn't make sense for us. But it, it comes down for me is, is someone trying to dictate something or are they truly, do they truly believe in their product? And do they truly believe that they want the customer to be as excited about this product as they are. You know, so if I have a client that's really not into what they're doing, that's not the client for me because the amount of time my team and, and myself personally that I will dedicate to a project to get something to launch, it's a lot of time. You know, I always say I can always make more money. I can never make more time. I can't get that time back, you know. And so that for me is the biggest thing. Do I want to spend my time engaged in this issue with this client? And obviously 18 years into the business, I think um, – I have the ability to say yes and no much easier than maybe I even did when I was younger. But, I, you know, ignorance is bliss at 22. I probably said no to things that I should have never said no to, but I didn't care. So, you know, I, that's always been what has driven me and this agency. And like I said earlier, we might be a lot bigger if I were willing to do things and take on some of the clients. But if I don't really believe in their product, it's not something I'm, I'm interested in. And I just want to clarify, that doesn't mean that I think every product has to be healthy or good. I think that... There are some brands today that are on this healthy, good kick that we all know we do not go into those restaurants or into those places to get something healthy or good. We go in just because we like it and it's interesting, you know. So I don't necessarily think that we have to. We're also in a place where we're like saying this is bad and that is bad. And I think as consumers, we have to say, I like this, so I'm going to do it. Or I'm interested in this, so I'm going to eat this. It doesn't mean I'm going to eat fast food every day. But if I want to go have a burger, I'm going to have a burger, and that's fine. And I think that's what I appreciate about millennials is the idea of, like, it's fine. You know, if I want to eat at Chipotle three days a week, that's actually cool, and it's fine. And so I kind of like that approach to things. Can I ask you a question about gender and identity for the millennial generation? Um, is, it, is, it an, is it an issue? So is being female an mm -hmm. issue if you, with whatever you want to pursue? Is being black an issue with whatever you want to pursue? Mm -hmm. And is it an issue? Is it a liability? Is it an asset? 
what's your read and take, both objectively and, and personally? Yeah, I, and you know, it's funny. Um, I was asked that question when I got older, and I didn't get it. And I said, you know, it, at least speaking for my, my personal career, I came up at a time, you know, in 96, before Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and Elle Girl and Teen Vogue and Teen People, and I kind of rode into the teen wave, and I happened to be a person who just had more insights than anyone else. And so I'm a big believer that, at least for me, the only color people saw was green. You know, and my <laughs> ability to make the money, I always say that. I'm like, the only color people saw with me is green. Um, I think that there's a, this is one of our trends, again, for next year. We're talking about this power girl trend. And I'm a little put off, personally. It's probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say today. Mm-hmm. Um, by people who think they need to tell girls that they can run as fast as boys today. Right. You know, I have a niece who's five. I never want her to hear that. I want, to know, I want her to know to run fast. You know, she's growing up. You know, my sister's a sociology professor. You know, she thinks her grandma's awesome. Her aunt runs a company. Phoebe already knows she can do whatever she wants to do with her life. And so I'm a little put off by that older brand. And again, even my journey, right? That would be like me saying, guys, entrepreneurship is so hard. You don't know what it's like for the last 18 years. Like my world, my journey is very different. You know, I couldn't build a website for less than $1,000, get business cards for less than $35 and have a business up and running via legal, legal Zoom in two days. That's an opportunity you have. And I think I have to respect that. And so I'm a little put off by campaigns where it's like, Girls are just as good as boys. It's like, I don't need a campaign to say that. Um, And it's hard because I think that, are there inequalities that exist? Yes. But also, I can't truly speak to that because I've always created my own job, my own opportunity. And so, you know, I will say one of the things that made me really love Dell was they talked about empowering women. And every time I was in a meeting there, there were women running the show in a way mm-hmm. and really empowered within that company. And so it was great to feel like I wasn't just saying something and then sitting in a room of all men dictating. Yeah. And so uh, that's important to see that if you're promoting a, a company culture that you're living it. And I very much felt that they were. Um, but yeah, I have a problem with, I think girl, girl power is the issue of the day. And so people have decided that, you know, and there are a lot of trends we can speak to in, in politics that we can see. We're trending toward this movement. And so I, I think that millennials see through all of that. Yeah. Um, I just think that pandering, it's like, oh, now we're going to talk about girls and how awesome girls are. And I think that, um, you know, toys for girls and things like that, you know, I didn't have a course in school that was like, this is math for girls. You know, most people don't know. I took advanced math and science classes from middle school until I graduated college. So And it didn't even go through your mind that that never, was an issue no. until somebody said or that. Or that yeah. girls were, I mean, like my girlfriends yeah. were like sitting next to me in class. This is what we did. And so yeah. I have a problem when we kind of call that out. It's like, hey, you, you can be successful too. Like that's kind of like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. We have time for one final question. Any, yeah, we got one right there, back there. Based on what you just said, do you think that being like a good sociologist is kind of an essential part of market research? And like, how have you um, like gained those skills? Um, I do. I and, all... and the question is. Sorry, do I think that being a good sociologist is an important part um, of my job? So I'll tell you this. I, in general, I tend not to hire marketing people to work for my company. I tend to hire people who come from some sort of social science. Um, 
Because I think what's really important is in marketing, sometimes we are taught to create the voice of the consumer. And I feel like we are living in a time now where we have to actually interpret what the consumer is saying to us and create for consumers what they're looking for from us. And so um, I also think it's a very European style of marketing where they really spend a lot of time understanding people and saying, okay, we now have these consumer segments and now we're going to create these products to satisfy that. And I've seen that through, you know, I've had some people work for, for my agency from Europe and that was very much the way they came into the experience versus I have the best new car idea and now how are we going to sell it? And so I think that um, I look for people that bring those kind of skills to the table because we really are in a time where technology is really creating, I, I keep talking about you know, this democracy where consumers can tell us instantly. And it's never happened before. You know, I use this example. When I was a teenager, if I wanted to know if Jane Cosmetics tested on animals, I would call an 800 number on the back of a package. If someone answered, I'd ask a question and then go with what they told me. Right now, if you want to know that, you can find out in a minute or less. And if you don't like what you see, you can start a petition on change.org. And so what consumers can do and how quickly and instantly you can do it, um, I think has totally changed what we as marketers do. And so I really look for people who, you know, cultural anthropologists, people who are really, really interested in what people want and not interested in coming in with an absolute outcome. To cut it off. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Thank Tina. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.